First Kings chapter 21. Last week, our study showed us a conspiracy among Ahab, Jezebel, and the sons of Belial to deprive Naboth, a righteous man, of his vineyard. And the sin of covetousness, which is how this began, that sin of covetousness had a wicked end, the death of Naboth. You know, the covetous person will continue to covet. And in some cases, the covetous person will exhaust all means to get what he or she covets. If you don't believe that, then go to a large department store the day after Thanksgiving, about 3 o'clock in the morning. People will stomp a mud hole in each other in their neighbor to get that first television or that first Elmo, Tickle Me Elmo, or whatever it is they're trying to get. But even the life of the righteous is not safe from the covetous man. When a government slowly and progressively takes the fruit of our labors from our hands, they're on the same road as Ahab was and as Jezebel was. And the hardworking people of China and North Korea, I'm talking about the citizens, could testify to this if they were only allowed to speak freely without fear of persecution. Now we'll pick up in verse 16. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 16. And it came to pass when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Completing his part of this conspiracy to not just steal or rob, but to kill and destroy. Ahab the unrighteous, took the vineyard belonging to a righteous man. Now verse 17, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you been missing Elijah? I've missed him too. But his absence allowed us to look a little more deeply into the chaos in which Israel was embroiled, particularly in the palace, in the government. And here's what Elijah said in verse 18. He said this, or God said to Elijah, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he has gone down to possess it. So God sent Elijah to catch Ahab in the very place he took by force, the vineyard of Naboth. Elijah would catch Ahab with his hand in the cookie jar, standing in the very place. That'd be like catching someone with that air conditioner window unit they just stole from someone's house, walking down the road. God said, you go down there and you catch him in the place he stole. And even though Naboth had already been murdered, Ahab could have refused to possess that vineyard. He could have spared himself one more crime in the eyes of the Lord and in the eyes of his fellow countrymen, at least the 7,000 who had not yet bowed the knee to Baal. He reminds me of a spouse who 
hires a hitman to kill the other spouse and does so in order to collect the life insurance money. The hitman does his evil work and kills the other spouse. And then the guilty spouse, having already committed a crime by soliciting a murder, that guilty spouse takes a step further and makes a death claim with the insurance company to get his or her ill-gotten money. It happens in the United States and all over the world more frequently than you can imagine. So like the greedy spouse, Ahab committed yet another crime when he possessed the vineyard of his victim. And the next verse shows us how these are indeed two crimes, not just one. Verse 19, this is what God told Elijah to tell Ahab. And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed and also taken possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. Notice the question the Lord would have or have Elijah ask Ahab. Hast thou killed? Now let's look first there at that pronoun thou. Hast thou killed? Who actually killed Naboth? It was the sons of Belial. Yet God said to Ahab, hast thou killed? He didn't say, Elijah, I want you to go ask Ahab, hast thy wife had the sons of Belial kill Naboth? So here's a lesson we learn from that. Whether you're a little kid or a grown person, when you conspire to commit a crime, when you conspire to disobey, you're just as guilty as the person who does the dirty work. You're just as guilty. A lookout man is just as guilty as the robber who holds up the bank. And this accusation is in the form of a question, hast thou killed? God already knows the answer. Now look, after the words, hast thou killed, you see two words, and also. That is, and also taken possession. Hast thou killed and also taken possession. So very clearly, God sees these as two Separate offenses, though they are linked, one brings about the other. And it lets us know that the act of taking possession of the vineyard was in addition to the act of killing. Ahab physically took possession, now uh, get this, he was physically present to take possession of the vineyard. He was physically involved in appropriating that place for himself, a place that was not his own. He was not physically present when Naboth was killed by the sons of Belial, and yet he is equally blameworthy in both cases. Criminals take advantage of this, and even more egregiously nowadays, some of these criminal organizations will get kids And I'm not talking about 16-year-olds. I'm talking about 10- and 11-year-olds to go do their dirty work for them, to kill other people, to steal, to rob, to do all manner of evil. And do you know why they do that? Two reasons. One, 
if the kid gets caught, he's probably going to get probation and get turned loose. Society will have some sort of mercy on him so he can go out and do it again and again and again and again. I've seen that. I worked with juveniles for a long time, juvenile offenders. And what they need is the same dose of justice that an adult needs in different in a different uh, uh, penitentiary, perhaps. We have the Texas Youth Commission. We have juvenile detention centers. When you take away a young person's freedom, then that speaks volume to them. When If you have teenagers and you take away their electronic devices or you tell them you're not going to go play with your friends anymore, that basketball game you were going to, guess what? You're going to sit at home with Dad. Oh, they hate that. I did. They do. But... These criminals will send these children out to commit crimes. But the second reason they do it is the same reason Jezebel, the same reason Ahab had sons of Belial go do the dirty work. Because when the wrath comes down, they can say, hey, I wasn't there. I didn't do anything at all. You were involved in the conspiracy. You're just as guilty. Now look back in the text there in verse 19 in the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth and he valued God in God's inheritance over man's word. And he valued those things even over his own life. He didn't say, well, I'll stand up for God's word until it costs me my life and then I'll protect my life instead. And he paid with his life. And yet his body was apparently allowed to sit in a public place to bleed out so that the dogs could lick that blood. That dog is an unclean animal. If you study your Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, the dog is an unclean animal, one that the Scripture says returns to his own vomit. And that unclean animal was allowed to lick up the blood of a righteous man. It appears that Naboth was not given even a proper burial. Now Jezebel, on the other hand, Jezebel valued herself and Ahab as royalty above the common people. But they valued Naboth as an insignificant person. And by telling Ahab that dogs would lick his blood in the same place they lick Naboth's blood, God through Elijah was telling Ahab, you're no better than Naboth. In fact, Naboth was more righteous than Ahab. Listen to Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 35. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 35 says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. And we know from studying the righteousness in the Bible that our righteousness doesn't come from us, but from Jesus Christ, and it's worked out through us. That's a very basic doctrine, and I hope you're settled on that already. Uh, if one is not, go to knowimsaved.com, pull up the right message, and, and you'll get settled. Verse 20, 
And Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? What a statement. That means my adversary, my foe. What makes a man the enemy of God's prophet? When a man is the enemy of God, he by extension is going to be the enemy of God's prophet. I'm sure there are a lot of people who love our pastor just out in the community and probably a few maybe even that love this old guy up here. But boy, they don't like to hear the Bible. I know it because when there's an awkward moment and I'm speaking to them about the Bible, about the gospel, and well, they don't know what to do with that. They want to change subjects. They don't want to talk about it, and I don't force them to. It tells me right there that although in the secular world they may seem to be my friends, and I do, I love them, I value their friendship, but when God's words are coming forth, they don't want anything to do with that. And that's how a man makes himself the enemy of God, is by rejecting God's word and therefore rejecting those who speak God's words. When Ahab said, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy?, He was responding to the words of the Lord. The prophet's words were adversarial. They were against him because God's word was adversarial to him. And this is exactly why unrighteous people get angry when a preacher preaches from God's word because that truth that divides the joints and the marrow lays bare that depravity of man and exposes all of his sin and tells him he has to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That angry, lost man or woman considers the preacher their enemy when the truth is God is their enemy because they made themselves the enemies of God. I'm going to give you two scriptures on that. James 4 Verse 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And who would that include? That was you and me before we were saved. We were the enemies of God. Romans chapter 5 verses 8 through 10 declares that very plainly. Romans 5, 8 through 10 where Paul is writing to Christians, and the Roman Christians, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, see, we were. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul's letter to the Romans addressed those Christians who, like him, like we, were formerly the enemies of God. And that gospel message was delivered, that was the message of God delivered to people like us. It was delivered in some cases to our ears over and over and over again. And perhaps there were faithful Christian witnesses in your life who spoke the word of the Lord to you and And maybe you even hated them at the time. You said, I don't want to hear that. 
You wanted them gone. You didn't like the way their words made you feel. Even though those words were from the Lord. Even though those words were words that had to be believed for one to be saved. So although Elijah brought the words of the Lord to Ahab, Ahab still considered Elijah and therefore God his enemy. He just didn't have the guts to outwardly say, God is my enemy. But he did so by rejecting God's words. Now, look what Elijah said there in verse 20. And he answered, I have found thee. <laughs> the, the worldly pandering preacher would have responded this way, perhaps, to Ahab's statement. Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? Here's what the worldly preacher would have said. Oh, Ahab, I'm not your enemy. Don't be upset with me. I didn't mean anything by it. I didn't mean to to frighten you by what I said. And that kind of milquetoast preacher would have modified his message. He would have softened the blow. But not Elijah. The least of his worries was whether Ahab personally liked him or not. That didn't matter to him at all, or at least not to the point where he would fail to speak God's word. Listen, none of us like to be hated. I don't want to say the reason I preach God's word is because it makes the the sinners mad. No, (laughs) I want to preach God's word so that the sinner repents and trusts what Jesus has done for him. And whereas he was mad, then he may be glad. Whereas he was sad or despondent or desperate or whatever his state was, he can be glad and sing that song, Oh, Say That I'm Glad, like I love to sing sometimes. Now, why is it that God sent Elijah to find Ahab? Well, look back in your text in verse 20. And he answered, I have found thee because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the occasion that prompted Elijah to find Ahab again. He'd already been in his presence before. He said, because thou sold thyself to work evil. When you sell something, two things happen. First, you receive money. But the second thing is, you have to unconditionally surrender what you sold. You don't get any say over it if you truly sold it. The buyer is under no obligation to let you buy it back, whatever you sold. And if he does let you buy it back, he doesn't have to sell it back to you at the price you sold it to him for. He can say, I want more money for it. And to receive the payment, which was a vineyard, Ahab had to surrender himself to an evil work. At any point prior to Naboth being killed, Ahab could have stopped the bus and reversed course. He could have said, you know what, we're, we're not going to do this. You, Jezebel, you go home and you tell those sons of Belial to go back to their houses. They're not to do this evil work. And I don't want that vineyard anymore. And I'm going to tell Naboth, hey, buddy, I've changed my mind. I'm sorry. It's yours. I won't bother you anymore. 
He could have reversed course and stopped all the damage, at least the outward damage. But he didn't do that. Because when he sold himself to do this evil work, that means he completely surrendered himself to do this evil work. And he had to, to, to surrender himself to this evil work. He had to follow through with it until it was done. Now that surrender to that evil work involved more than just killing Naboth, but it also involved the stealing of the vineyard afterward and all of the consequences that follow. So let's, let's take a real simple example. You've instructed your child that they are not to leave your yard until you get home. They're to stay in your yard. And you come home, and sure enough, your child is on a bicycle a mile down the road as you, you're pulling up. Okay, well, they knew the consequences. And so if the child suddenly stops their bike and runs home and says, Hey, hey, I'm surrendering, uh, or I'm no longer surrendered to that evil work. I'm, I'm done with it. I'm home. Too late. Because by leaving the yard... Not only did they surrender to the evil work, to disobeying you, but they also surrendered to the consequences that come with it. And as a parent, if you don't enact those consequences, you have done your child wrong. You haven't just done wrong in the sight of the Lord, but you've done wrong by your child. He that spareth the rod hateth his child. That's what the Bible says. So in the sight of the Lord is the next thing there in verse 20. It wasn't just that Ahab did evil. He did it in the sight of the Lord. This enhances the severity of the offense. Now God sees all sin. It's not like there are some sins we commit in the sight of the Lord and others that he can't see. He sees all sins. So any sin against man is a sin against God. It's a sin God sees. But our phrase in the sight of the Lord, deals more with the reason why Elijah was sent to Ahab. It wasn't that Elijah read the news somewhere and saw that Ahab had done evil to Naboth and decided to go set Ahab straight. I'm going to go set him straight. That's what people do on Facebook a lot, isn't it? They get on there and try to set somebody straight. And some people need to be set straight. But what usually happens, you end up in an argument that that person's never going to allow you to win, and you get frustrated. I know. Uh, anyway, that's that's for another day. But this wasn't a this wasn't a secular protest either, or a citizens' march against the crime of the king. It was that the Lord sent Elijah to Ahab because Ahab worked evil in the sight of the Lord. Elijah wasn't calling Ahab to account for himself, but he was, by God's instrumentation, calling Ahab to account to God. God was holding Ahab accountable, and he did that by telling Elijah, you go tell him these things. Why else would Elijah walk into the lion's den of a king and a queen who, had, who hated him so much that they had sought his life. They sent men across the country, and those men would search 
We read this before. Those men would search and they would uh, encounter people who would have to give them some sort of pledge that they had not seen Elijah. And then that was taken back to the king. The reason he did it is because God sent him down there to do it. Verse 21. Here's what God's promise is to, to Ahab through Elijah. Behold, I will bring evil upon thee and will take away thy posterity and will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall and him that is shut up and left in Israel. He said, I will bring evil upon thee. You see the, the verb there, bring? Well, it's will bring, but bring evil upon thee. Notice God didn't say, I will be evil toward thee. God is not evil. He's good. He is just. He's gracious. However, evil exists in this world because of sin. And therefore, because evil exists in this world, God may direct the course of evil when and where it accomplishes his sovereign will. And he's done it all throughout the Bible. He did that with the enemies of Israel. He said, I'm going to deliver you into bondage with them. And so... We'll see in the next few verses a litany, a list of things that God will bring to pass as he brings evil upon Ahab. In other words, I'll bring evil upon thee to wit. And here are the following things. Let's look at the first one there in verse 21. He said, I will take away thy posterity. That word posterity we don't use much, but literally translated it means after, after. My posterity are those generations who come after me. I have three daughters. I have two granddaughters. Those are my posterity. And even when I'm gone from this earth, as they continue to have children and grandchildren and so forth, that will be my posterity even when I'm gone. And I'm very thankful that I have a posterity to uh, to leave behind and, and to love now and to, to try to be a witness to. God is telling Ahab, nobody is going to be born after you. And the ones who have been born are going to die. There were some who had already been born to Ahab through his wife or wives. So God will pronounce their fate shortly in the verses to come. But we need to be reminded of two things here. Sometimes it's easy for a person to think, Boy, God, that seems awful cruel or harsh. First of all, the wages of sin is death. So anytime God does not kill someone who is a sinner, right there on the spot, he's shown great mercy because the wages of sin is death. And the second thing, and this isn't all, but the second thing is God knows the end from the beginning. He knows who will believe and who will not. And therefore, when he brings evil upon an evildoer, he's still altogether righteous. And he does it by his foreknowledge. If we knew everything in advance that was going to happen, if we let this situation occur or or didn't prevent this situation, we could act with perfect foreknowledge. But we cannot. We're so far from act. We can't even get it right about what did happen much less about what's going to happen. We pay men and women six figures a year to get the weather wrong, don't we? 
We pay, we pay baseball players millions of dollars to fail two-thirds of the time they're at the plate. Did you know you hit 333 in the big leagues and you're a good baseball player? He said in verse 21, God said to Elijah to tell to Ahab, I, that he will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall. Now, almost every other translation I consulted renders this phrase as every male in Israel, and that's what it means. But in the Hebrew language, those words are there, so you just have to deal with them. I didn't put them there. And it's, it is unfortunate that not only this language but others used to be perfectly acceptable, but man has so twisted them. The rainbow. We've talked about that before. I'm not a member of the rainbow club. I'm a member of the family of the God who made the rainbow. The word posterity we studied, it means all who come after, and this phrase here means specifically the males. So it emphasizes the impossibility of any more males carrying on the line of Ahab. And then he includes in verse, at the end of verse 21, who else he's going to cut off? Him that is shut up and left in Israel. Now that would refer to those members of Ahab's posterity who were in bondage, whether they were bond servants or perhaps they were in prison. That is, there's not going to be one who's bond or free who will be left to carry on the Ahab family name. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. And so while this truth applies to those who are in Christ, it also applies to those who are not in Christ. People who believe, well, my position socially will get me a little further with God. I'll have an excellent argument to present to him about why he should let me into his heaven. But then in Revelation 13, I'll read a couple of verses from there. Verses 11 through 12 and verse 16. If you're taking notes, I'll say it again. It's Revelation 13, verses 11 through 12 and verse 16. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon, and he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. Now, if you skip down to verse 16, you'll see what this beast will do to the unbelievers. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, now, that's what we're dealing with when God said he's going to cut off all of those that pertain to Ahab, him that is shut up and left in Israel. He had already talked about the free ones, the ones who weren't shut up, but now he's talking about the ones who are shut up. Free in bond to receive a mark in their right hand or on their foreheads. So God is no respecter of persons as we've already studied. Whether they be free or bond, those in Ahab will be destroyed. You see that? 
whether they be free or bond, those who remain lost in their sins will be destroyed. Whether they be free or bond, those who are in Christ will be saved. The fact that you're bound as a, as a bond servant, as a slave, or perhaps even in prison does not affect your standing in Christ. It's not our condition among men that determines our eternal state, but our position in Christ. Let's look at verse 22. God continues to speak through Elijah to Ahab. And will make thine house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. He said he'd make his house like the house of Jeroboam. Well, what was the house of Jeroboam like? The Bible's not referring to the structural house, the hearing beam or the slab and the upper structure, all of that, the building where Jeroboam lived. He's referring to his household, the members of his family, because that's what the, the, the Scripture tells us when we studied 1 Kings chapter 13, and I'm just reviewing what we've already studied just to help expound this verse that we're in. 1 Kings 13, in verses 33 through 34, it said, After this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again of the lowest people, priests of the high places. Whosoever he would, he consecrated him. And he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing became sin under the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and destroy it from off the face of the earth. So it was for that cause, Jeroboam's evil, that God cut him off, cut off his house. And in 1 Kings 15, verse 28 through 29, because our text spoke also of Baasha and his house. 1 Kings 15, 28 through 29, even in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, did Baasha slay him and reigned in his stead. And it came to pass when he reigned that he smote all the house of Jeroboam. He left not to Jeroboam any that breathed until he had destroyed him according unto the saying of the Lord, which he spake by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite, like the house of Baasha. What was the house of Baasha like? The house of Baasha is referred to in 1 Kings 16, verses 10 through 12. Again, you should already have these in your notes if you've taken notes. 1 Kings 16, 10 through 12. And Zimri went in and smote him and killed him in the twenty and seventh year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his stead. And it came to pass when he began to reign, as soon as he sat on the throne, that he slew all the house of Baasha. He left him not one that pisseth against a wall, neither of his kinfolk nor of his friends. Thus did Zimri destroy all the house of Baasha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake against Baasha by Jehu the prophet. Now listen, Ahab could be absolutely sure, if he had faith, he could be sure that Elijah's words were true and that they would come to pass. Because there are two instances that should have been fresh in his memory from the words of the prophets, from the passing down of oral history from his forefathers, that all of Jeroboam's household was cut off and all of Baasha's house was cut off. And it was because they provoked the Lord and they made Israel to sin. And just as surely as their houses were cut off, 
so will your house be cut off, Ahab, because you did the same thing they did. In the sentence read thusly, his sentence at the end of verse 22, for the provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. That's why God's doing this to him. He didn't just pick him out and say, I think I'll be cruel to Ahab today. No, Ahab brought this upon himself. For the provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. Abraham, excuse me, Ahab provoked the Lord. That means he made God angry. In fact, anger is the usual translation of the Hebrew word here. And not only did Ahab anger God, he aggravated his own sin by making Israel to sin. It says he made Israel to sin. He made them sin not by physically forcing them, but by leading them to sin. By worshiping Baal himself, he led many others to do so. And that's what unrighteous rulers do. Unrighteous rulers try to get the people to follow them. A righteous ruler will try to get the people to follow God. That's the difference. In every kingdom that's ever been on this earth, that is the truth. And by rendering unrighteous judgment in national matters, Ahab led the citizens to do so in their own matters. And the the evidence we have of that, that's not just a statement I made. As an overseer, he could have led the people to God. He could have said, you worship the Lord. We worship the one true God. But what was it that God said to Elijah when he was hiding in the wilderness? And Elijah said, well, it's just me left, and they're trying to kill me. God said, no, I've got I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. It's not very many considering the whole country. And in verse 23, Now the sentence on Ahab is pronounced, and God moves to Jezebel. And of Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel, not to be left out. The wife of Ahab would die an even more ignominious death. And her high, proud, lofty look would be cast down. And although the dogs would lick the blood of Ahab, the text here tells us they would eat her carcass. They would eat Jezebel. Verse 24, Him that dieth of Ahab in the city, shall the dogs shall eat. And him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. So the offspring of Ahab would suffer the same fate as Jezebel. The dogs would eat the ones who died in the city. And I don't know whether the ones who would die in the field had run away from the city after seeing all this or whether they were working in the field or just happened to be in the field. The point is there would be no escape whether you're in the city or you're in the field. If you are uh, an offspring of Ahab, you're going to be eaten by the dogs. That's your fate. And in verse 25, But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. You know, going down in history this way is not funny. It's not cool. I don't care if Netflix makes a movie series about Ahab and 
lifts him up and glorifies him and his evil ways. It doesn't redeem him from his evil works. And there was only one hope for Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. That means she stirred up Ahab, and that was repent to repent to the Lord. But she stirred him up. That is, she incited him or persuaded him as the word is also translated. In fact, there's another word for it. And this makes Ahab even more guilty. You may say, well, now if she stirred him up, that, that's on her, right? Well, she does have sin on her account for that. But listen to God's original instructions to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 6 through 8, because he addresses this right here. And remember, where did Jezebel come from? She came from one who was a Baal worshiper. Her dad was a Baal worshiper, and she was, and so was her husband. It says, Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 8, If thy brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul, entice, same as the word stirred up, entice thee secretly, saying... Let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known thou nor thy fathers, namely of the gods of the people which are round about you, nigh unto thee or far off from thee, from one into the earth, even unto the other. Thou shalt not consent unto him. Were you all here Wednesday for the study of the Proverbs? What are we not to do when sinners entice us? To consent unto them. (laughs) This is an old truth that never changes. And God delivered it to the children of Israel well before those Proverbs were written. It says, Thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, neither shall thine eye pity him. Neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him. God had already warned the children of Israel that no matter who entices them, whether it's your wife or your brother, no matter who stirs them up to go serve other gods, They're not to consent to them. And furthermore, even if that person is the wife, he was not only not to consent to her, but he was also not to hearken to her or pity her or spare her or conceal her. But Ahab did every one of these things. And with that, we'll stop and next week pick up with verse 26. Any questions or comments about the lesson? All right, let's pray. Father, we're very thankful for the word of God, thankful for the truth that you've given us today, and may we be taught by your Spirit both now and in the coming service. May the songs of praise be pleasing to your ears, and may the thoughts and intents of our heart, Lord, be surrendered to you. And, Father, we are so thankful for the people who come and for the ones who watch us online, and pray that you'd bless them in a mighty way today. In Jesus' name.